Well, good morning. Happy New Year to all of you. Last week it was Merry Christmas, and this week it's another year. Thankful for the gift of life. Good to see those of you visiting this morning. A warm welcome to each of you, and hope you can join in worship this morning. <clears throat> Over the course of years that I've shared messages, numerous times it's fallen early in the year, and there have been things that I have enjoyed doing and reflecting on the opportunity of another year, and I thought that's where I was going this morning, uh, but I really felt like the last sermon I preached two weeks ago left some things that needed tidied up. Uh, it was way too much material for way too short a time, and so I actually have two sermons printed this morning, and I am doubtful I'll get to the second one, which was the one I intended to preach this morning, so it can come later. Uh, but I would like to, to reflect just a little bit before we go into catching up with the last sermon and uh, finishing that up. I would like to just encourage each of us as we look at what the new year holds. And I, I heard what Linford said, talking about a difficult time and in their life. Uh, reflect on having been at a funeral in the last two weeks. I think about the unknowns of the coming year. And typically it's with anticipation. But one of the things that I can't help but recognize is that I'm getting older and we're all getting older at the same rate. It's just some of us it seems more pronounced than others <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> as we have that aging that happens. I was sitting here thinking about songs, and my eyes went to the, uh, the future life and heaven section. And I recognize there's a number of them there that I don't think I know that we don't sing. That's probably one we ought to, we ought to spend some time in and just learn some of those songs. I was responsible for the committal service at a brother-in-law's funeral a week and a half ago. And one of the nephews was leading the singing there, and not from the, the family of the brother-in-law who passed. And, and he was singing songs that we knew. It was by memory. It was, uh, there was no songbooks there. And uh, the son-in-law of the man who had passed, he looked at me and he said, Verlin, tell him to sing songs about heaven, as there weren't any being sung at, the, at that point. And... Uh, that was a, a reminder of me, you know, that, that man who passed away, he had lived a difficult life. His family had a difficult, uh, or had a challenge in, in working with his health issues, and yet there was still the hope of heaven, and that's what they wanted to talk about. It's what they wanted to sing about, and that's what I'd like to present before you uh, this morning. <clears throat> what are you looking forward to? The year is full of unknowns. Is this the year some of us might get to go to glory? Maybe. I'm toying with a, uh, a compilation of life lessons. 
And one of the phrases, and I know you've heard me say it, most of you heard me say it, but that is the whole idea of preparing for, for future usefulness. And I think that should be on our mind regardless if this is the year that we go to heaven or not. We're preparing for future usefulness and the Lord will decide when we get to see him and look forward to that. So let's go into wrapping up a sermon that I started and sort of finished a couple weeks ago. If you were not here, the topic was modesty. It was a practical topic. One of the things that I reflected on afterwards is that I didn't spend enough time in Scripture. And I find that to be a grievous error when you're behind the pulpit and you are representing what the Lord says. The Scripture must be our base. So I hope to come back to some of that. And you can't, in the application and discussion of Scripture and its principles, uh, you necessarily... Obviously, more words come than simply the Scripture as we seek to understand it and apply it. That's one of the things I'd like to do. I got a couple of comments about, well, how does this topic apply to men? Uh, One person said it's easy for him as a man just to kind of check out and to say, well, that's mostly for the ladies. And uh, maybe I presented it that way. It certainly was not... My intent, although in fairness, Scripture is more silent on what modesty for men is. And so we're going to explore that a little bit this morning. <clears throat> have a quote on the screen that I think is very helpful. The choice, the real choice in the debate over standards of dress is not between legalism and license, but between God as lawgiver or man as lawgiver. That was from Douglas Phillips. And I do want to call us back to that, allowing God to be the person who sets our standards. For those of you that are visiting, this is the topic that we have not addressed here at Wellspring very often, and not for quite a number of years, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to come back and to wrap it up. I'd like to think that we apply Scripture and we just live without getting hung up in the details and without letting that overshadow the core things, which are we follow Jesus. We accept his shed blood, his atonement, for our sin, and we seek to honor him in the way we live. This topic then comes out of that, and this quote goes back to that. Is God the lawgiver, or are we? I want to recap just a couple of things. If you'll excuse me here. Okay. 
for some reason I have a different view on my screen and it's confusing me because I'm used to being able to see on here what's there. The setting changed without my knowledge. My apologies, so I may have to turn my head to make sure I'm keeping up with uh, where we are here. Uh, actually, let me try one thing. And let's see. There we go. Let's do that. Now we're on track. Okay. Thank you for your patience. So the, uh, these are some of the resources that I uh, suggested for last time. I'm not going to rehearse them. If you want a copy of that or to know about them, be glad to get them for you. I want to go to the scripture, and this was one of the bases that we had in 1 Timothy 2, I want to read that. I want to do just a brief recap of the outline so we're on the same page. And I want to go into a few of the particulars. So 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So one of the things that, that we're going to do this morning is notice the two sections. Chapter, or verse 9 says, do this. It's dressed this way. Verse 10 is not with. So we have a with verse and a not with. And I'd like to explore that difference a little further. But coming back to our outline that we followed last time, the dictates of culture have changed. We talked that about, extent, about that extensively in the history, particularly of American culture. We didn't go real back, far back in time. Uh, but there was a couple of things just interesting I don't think I mentioned last time. And this highlights some of the changes from where we are today compared to the last 150, 200 years. Did you know that in the 1800s, some seaport cities had a written ordinance that required swimsuits to consist of at least seven yards of fabric. Now, I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to swim tangled in seven yards of fabric, but that was an ordinance, and that's one of the shifts that has happened in our culture. And it's, you know what swimwear is today, it's much less than that. Go back just 90 years in the 1930s, it was considered indecent exposure for a man to go bare-chested in public. Today, society thinks nothing of men without shirts. A hundred years ago, 1922, in America, a woman in a one-piece swimsuit was arrested for indecent exposure. Times have changed, and yet the Lord hasn't, uh, even though the, one of the things we talked about, the acceptance of immodest swimwear led to the acceptance of immodest streetwear. That's one factor. We also talked about just the degradation of societal norms, the feminist movement, rebellious times, all of those things that happened in which people were more freely expressing themselves and going away from 
a, uh, a biblical basis that was present more broadly throughout culture earlier. So I see I got ahead of myself here. Here was the things I just mentioned. Let's go then on down. The, we had that shift in culture. Immodesty has become the norm in society in general. The origin of clothing, we find that in Genesis, where we go from a time when there was no need for clothes to the beginning of shame, the loss of innocence, and God clothed Adam and Eve. Then they had the need for clothing, and just noting that clothing has spiritual significance. We further looked at Bible examples just in general, and on this one, I'd like to encourage you all, if you didn't listen to, if you weren't here for last, the last sermon on this, you could go to our website and listen. That would give a, a better backdrop to what I'm talking about here. But if you look at the way God clothed Adam and Eve, the priests, the Israelites, the way Jesus was dressed, the saints in heaven, and my best understanding of those words, uh, basically cover the same area. And that's kind of the takeaway for me as far as what part is covered. This comes out of a business handbook, an employee handbook describing that. That square box kind of gives an idea of what that company's standards are. That's what, how you should dress. That should be covered. The reason I put it here is because, as I understand Scripture, that is the basic area that when you look at biblical examples, that's the part of the body that was covered, neck to below the knees. And uh, there again, if you want to hear more on that, uh, check out the, the other sermon that I shared. So back to the First Timothy passage, and I'd like to spend just a little bit more time here now with the First Timothy 2 passage. How are we to dress? And it says the Christian woman should adorn herself with shamefacedness, sobriety, and good works. We talked about that some last time, so I'm not going to rehearse that as much, but just noting that the shamefacedness is a feminine reserve. It's respectful. It's a respectful attitude towards one's conscience. William Hendrickson said, it is a shrinking from trespassing the boundaries of propriety. So there's a shamefacedness, sobriety, uh, deals with self-control and sanity. It's exhibited in the good works that are also mentioned. Uh, it's righteous deeds. It's an outworking of a heart that's right with their maker. So that's the, the with. Do it with this. It does, you'll notice it doesn't prescribe, okay, uh, sleeves have to be this long, uh, it's got to be this type of material. It has to be this many yards. It, it doesn't say that, but it gives general ideas. You know, if you think about it, it would be really difficult to spell out all the do's and don'ts of this. And so what we're given is general principles. Do it this way. Let your dress match these things. And these are attitudes that are mentioned here, shamefacedness, sobriety, good works then is action. Then we have the not with. She should not be adorned with broided hair in the King James. And we, this is one of the things I want to talk about just a little bit more that as I skimmed over it last time, I wanted to make sure I was clearly understood 
Literally, broided means braided. Does that mean that our understanding should be that all braided hair is wrong? My take on that is no. The idea of broided hair, as I understand it, has to do with braided for ornamentation. And the way that they would have typically done that in that culture is they would have mixed some kind of ornaments or finery in that braiding. And it would have been done in a way to draw attention to the hair. And so to just make a blanket statement that braiding the hair for women or girls is wrong, I think would be incorrect. I think it once again goes back to the, the point of what scripture teaches. And if you take in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about the woman's hair, long hair in particular being her glory that ought to be covered, that fits in with what we're talking about here where the way we present ourselves physically is not to draw attention to ourselves and to be, uh, in a pro it should be nice, there's nothing wrong with being attractive, don't hear that, but unduly drawing attention to ourselves, rather it's saying here, do it in a way that it's, it's the good part of the inner man that is seen and not the highlighting of the externals. You'll notice the other things that are mentioned, the gold pearls, the jewelry, the costly array. Uh, it talks about the types of things that you do once again. And it's saying, don't dress with those things. One of the things I put on the screen here that I wanted to show you, and we didn't do this last time. We did talk a little bit about jewelry uh, I'm not going to go long on that one this morning, but just to say that if you look at the examples of jewelry in Scripture, most often it is associated with some kind of a negative connotation. There's, uh, it's frequently that rather than positive. You will find some positive uh, references or uh, context for that. So where I'd like to go with this, two examples. The first one, the Jewish women. In Isaiah chapter 3, they're being judged for the way that they are. And I'd like for you to notice this list. Uh, it, I'm going to read several verses here. Beginning in 16, the Lord says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Don't you like that description? I mean, it's... It's fairly vivid. God's saying, that's not okay. He says, I'm going to judge you because of that. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. And what you'll see on the next screen, or screens, is going to be scripture. I didn't do anything except put individual descriptions on separate lines. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench, instead of a sash, a rope, instead of well-set hair, baldness, instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty, 
Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty in war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit on the ground. And so in this judgment picture, you have, God says, you're going to go from mincing about as you walk with your outstretched haughty appearance and demeanor. You're going to go from that to here in verse 26. You're going to be desolate and sit on the ground. And the reason I pull these things up is not necessarily because everything listed there is wrong, but it's a description of haughty women and the way they present themselves in a way that does not please God. And, and he's saying that he will be judging them for that. Judge for the proud and wicked hearts. The pride and wickedness were exemplified, if I counted right, 21 different outer ornaments or pieces of ornamentation that are listed there. The other example is that of Jezebel. This is another not with. Remember the Timothy instruction is women should be adorned this way and not with. This is another description of the not with. In 2 Kings 9.10, let me get that. I have that in the, no, I don't have that written up. Uh, just simply says that she had a painted face and an adorned head. I'm assuming that was some kind of a hairdo. I don't know what it was. We're not told. But we do know that she was a very wicked woman, and the way that she presented herself, uh, in fact, the, word, the name Jezebel is used throughout Scripture to typify that kind of wickedness, including in Revelation 2. So we have, and there she's described as an immoral idolater. <clears throat> I bring her up because if you look at other descriptions of her and the way she presented herself, it once again was with that significant outer ornamentation. So the Christian woman should, be or should adorn herself with certain things and she should not be adorned with certain things because those items are not compatible with women professing godliness. And we're going to make a shift here to this next one. The inner character is to be the attractive part of the Christian woman. And we're going to go to that in uh, the Peter passage that we had looked at last time. So this is kind of a duh statement, but it's one we tend to forget. I already mentioned the passing of time. But guess what? We're all aging. You think about the way you present yourself. You think about your appearance. And recently was struck with this as I saw nieces and nephews on Jerry's side of the family that hadn't seen in a while. They've grown up. It's like, it, it struck me, okay, so you have, just on a real simple timeline, you've got fairly generic-looking babies when they're born. They do look different, but they're kind of the same. As they get a little bit older, they take on a more distinct appearance. They have a more individual appearance. You go on up through the, the childhood, early teen years, you go through a stage where just kind of awkward and that baby cuteness, toddler cuteness might go away. And as teenagers, we're like, you know, we get pimples and whatever else we deal with. And it's like, this just really isn't very pretty. 
And we go through that awkward phase, and you get to the upper teens, and this varies from individuals, but you go into the teens, up, uh, upper teens, lower 20s, maybe into 30s. It's just kind of the prime when people are beautiful. It's, it, I looked it up, uh, found a chart that's interesting. It's when, yeah, it would be fascinating for you all, but it wasn't particularly helpful, other than to say that people reach their peak in different things all throughout life. And physically, it tends to happen in that upper teens, through the 20s, maybe into 30s. And by the time we get to 40, 50 years old and beyond, we just, we're aging and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, good diet, healthy lifestyle, it can help prolong that. Why am I bringing that up? Young people, old people, who are you dressing for? Young people, if you're choosing a life partner, is it just on appearance? Is that a big deal in it? You should be physically attracted. I won't diss that at all. I want you to be. But if that's all, you're in for a big disappointment. Because guess what? If you, unless you die young, you're going to age. And we just won't look so pretty anymore. It's just life. And so we come back to what's he teaching here in this? He's saying the inner man, the inner character is what ought to be attractive. Do you try to make your inner person the real you? Do you make that as much effort? Do you put as much effort into that being attractive as you do the way you dress and comb your hair and present yourself? We would do well to give more attention to the inner man not at the exclusion of taking care of our physical appearance, but that is who we really are. The people you love and the person you are will change physically. Character does not need to decline. In fact, I believe character grows as we mature, and maturity only happens with the passing of time. Somebody said, change is inevitable, growth is optional. And I believe that to be true. The inner man can develop and become increasingly attractive regardless of our physical condition. First Peter 3, we'll touch on a few verses here and make a few comments. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning. And look at these three things again. It's the same thing as in Timothy. The plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, and the putting on of apparel. Once again, it's hair, jewelry, and clothes are the things that are being talked about. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. This is what we're talking about. Let that inner person develop in which, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And I think I'm going to... Well, verse 5, 
talks about the in old time the holy women also adorned themselves and a part of that was being in subjection to their husbands we talked about that last time so i'm not going to talk about it much today but god's order of headship uh, is a part of this modesty as well it's a part of that inner character that it should be attractive as a part of the appearance of the christian woman Men will notice, others will behold Christian women. It says that, it's natural, it's there, it happens. Uh, what do they observe? They should observe a chaste conversation, pure motives and actions, a pure way of life. It's not the outward adorning of the body. And once again there in verse 3, it was adorning the, the hidden man of the heart. So... Why is he addressing women and not men? And I'd like to go to talking about men's role in modesty a little bit. So this, um, the next statement I'm going to make is a stereotype that is not always true, and I acknowledge that. But some of this is just the way we are hardwired as people. In general, women tend to care more about personal appearance than men do. Now, there are men who care very much about the way they look, but in general, we can make that statement. Part of the way that we're wired as men is we are very visual. So things that are beautiful, people that are beautiful, we, are, we notice that visually. And, uh, you know, that's what the fashion industry and pornogra pornographers recognize that. They recognize that uh, women, material with women uh, depicted has tended to be more profitable than of men. And I know they both exist, but that has, that's the stereotype I'm presenting there. But that's where we as Christians come in. That may be the way that the fallen man is wired. That may be the way that God created just natural interaction and attraction. But that doesn't mean that only the woman is responsible. And so when we look at men's role in modesty, there's a couple of things I'd like to note. One is the First Peter 3 passage, and I did not put it on the screen, but if you look at verse 7, he follows this instruction to women with a very clear direction to men. And in that instruction, he says, you dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as under the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I'd like to pull three ideas from that. Men, your role in modesty deals with the things you value. He says here we're heirs together of the grace of life. There is nothing demeaning about a woman being a weaker vessel as described here. She is not inferior, just different. Equal value, different roles. We're to live with them knowledgeably. And it says we're to give honor to the wife. And this next phrase ought to strike some fear in the heart of every husband. It says that your prayers be not hindered. Man, if we don't live with our wives knowledgeably and with understanding, the scripture says 
that our prayers may be hindered as a result of that. So I think a, a man's role in modesty deals with the way we support our women, with the way we value them, we give honor to them. So that's value is the first word. The second one is attitude. Women want to please men. I don't mean that in any kind of a bigoted way. I'm talking about people in healthy relationships. We like to please each other. Women like to please the men in their lives by the way that they appear. They tend to dress for what is attractive to the men in their social group. So I'm going to place some of the responsibility of this on the men. What is it that you find attractive? I feel very fortunate that pornography is not a part of my story. I had to wrestle with issues of sexuality as a young man, as all men do, I believe, but it wasn't pornography. I remember in my probably upper 20s, the first time I saw a uh, completely nude picture, it was revolting to me. There was nothing beautiful or attractive about it. And I know that for many of you, that may be a different story. But I'm telling you that to tell you that is possible. And I'm asking you as men to cultivate what is it that really is attractive to you. It can be beautifully dressed, godly women. And the women in our lives ought to know that we find that attractive. Uh, there's people that, uh, people that don't cover themselves up or dress immodestly, they're a dime a dozen. Ladies who present themselves being covered can be very attractive, and I want to bless you ladies in that. Uh, and men, I think it's right for us to cultivate that and to let the ladies know what we find about them that's good and attractive. So what about modest dress for men? As I mentioned earlier, this one's kind of tough because the Bible is pretty silent on it. It doesn't say much. But there's a couple of things I'd like to just note. There was no gender distinction in the things that, in the biblical examples that I gave that started with, uh, Adam and Eve, when God clothed Adam and Eve all the way up to the saints in heaven, there was no gender distinction of that area that was covered. And so that diagram that I would have showed you earlier, I think that's applicable to both genders. That is the general area that as a minimum ought to be covered, the neck to below the knees. It shouldn't be proud and haughty dress. We can go to other biblical principles that might not say dress, but men, how do we present ourselves? There's an element of our dress that reflects who we are and who we identify with. It's, I won't give the stereotypes, I'll let your mind fill in the blanks, but you know when you see somebody dressed a certain way on the street, 
you can immediately place them with certain subcultures. You just do. It might be color, it might be style, but those associations are there. And I believe that that same association can be made for people of God, that people can tell when we are dressing in a way that honors the Lord, that goes for men and ladies. So not, a pr not proud, not haughty dress, not reflecting the pride of life. We could explore that from 1 John. But appearance that honors Jesus Christ, allowing dress to reveal a good value system. And so I'll just sum it up by saying that dress should be appropriately nice without being lavish or extravagant. It should cover. Our sin and shame required a covering. And maybe it would be worth noting that God didn't just cover up Eve in the Garden of Eden after sin. He covered up Adam too. And maybe that's as good a defining point as any for us men, is to recognize that our sin and our shame needs covered every bit, every bit as much as the ladies do. We too are guilty of sin. This is where we ended up last time. And there, was, there were some things in here that I skipped. I'm going to just go back to a couple of those. But if you think about everything that we do, the passages there uh, listed for number one, examining our motives, glorifying God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and Colossians 3.17 talk about everything that we do should bring honor and glory to the Lord. And that's where I want us to come back to thinking about the way we present ourselves. Uh, once again, I would refer you to uh, Evelyn's book, and uh, Feminine Beauty, I think I have the name right. She has a fairly long list of just practical tips of here's how you can dress in an attractive way that doesn't unduly draw attention to the body. One of the things that, that I have seen, and you probably have as well, if you've grown up in conservative Christian circles where there was some kind of a dress standard, you've probably observed people following the letter of the law. They had a given type of dress, or, and by dress I'm talking men and women, not just women. The clothes they wore, it fit the prescribed attire. But the way that it was worn did not meet the biblical principle. And that's what I would like to call us back to. You know, I could, we could even look at, you know, what our standards are and we could ask, are we following those? Might be good to do that, but that, that wasn't really my point. What I'd like for us all to think about is, are we honoring God in the way that we dress? And not, I'm not talking about the letter of the law. I'm talking about, are we honoring him in what people actually see? You know, you can, yeah. I, we're talking about how form-fitting it is, how tight it is, how much it covers, uh, designs, any of those things. Uh, last time we had talked about some of the local public school standards. They don't allow certain slogans, writings on their clothes. It becomes a problem in their environment. Uh, 
I suggest that we be careful with the kinds of things we advertise on our clothes. The public school cares about it. Uh, why shouldn't the church? And we, I don't think we even have that in our church covenant. I'm just making an appeal. That's the kind of thing I'm thinking about as we present ourselves publicly. How do we represent Christ? He is our Lord, and we need to honor him. Modesty is a hard issue, first of all. Do I love God more than self? Am I in my proper place in God's order of headship? Have I made him Lord of my life, every part of my life? And once again, this quote, is God the lawgiver of the way I dress, or do we take our cues from man? I want to bless you all as you follow the Lord. I didn't give the sermon because I thought people needed correcting. I gave the sermon because I think it's important, and when things like this aren't heard over time, they do tend to be forgotten. And I'd like for you children to be able to hear the biblical basis for why we apply Scripture the way that we do. I'd like for you adults to be encouraged and reminded of why we do and to continue following the Lord. So maybe next time we'll get to the New Year's sermon. It won't be New Year's anymore, but we're still following the Lord and I look forward to what he's going to do in 2022. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have given an opportunity for redemption to all who believe that you've given us the Holy Spirit to draw us to yourself and to teach us how to live. You said that he would guide us into all truth, that he would remind us of the things that you taught. And I just pray that that would be the case for each person here. I pray that we would honor you in the way we live, that we would present, represent you well to each other, from those who we live with to the people we just meet on the street or maybe only meet once in a lifetime. We ask that in every situation, you would be reflected in the inner man, that you would continue to transform us, to change us, make us into your image so that we can reflect you well. Meet each need represented here and we just commit your word to the power of the Holy Spirit, to apply it in the way that you see fit in each of our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.